Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, we'll visit the Fort Lauderdale History Center. Frank Stranahan came down here to uh, basically run the ferry uh, across. In the, he was set up the trading post and a camp for overnight visitors because people would come down from Palm Beach by stage. Remembering the first Jewish temple on the Treasure Coast, they decided to have a fun drive, uh, which not only the uh, Jewish community had supported, but the, also a lot of the uh, Christian uh, people in town. And a discussion of Florida's violent past. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Okay, well, actually, if you notice along this wall to the south here, we have quite a number of uh, filing cabinets, and these are our history files. These are clipping files. Marilyn Rathbun is research director at the Fort Lauderdale History Center. She's giving us a tour of the Hoke Heritage Center archive. We're one of the few uh, institutions in this area that still does clipping files, you know, that we basically clip the newspapers. Uh, we find any kind of magazine articles, brochures, anything of that sort. And it's we have them organized, actually, this... I have here our finding aid, as you can see, with all of our, these are all of our uh, subject matter here that we have. And we go everything from A to Z, you know, from agriculture and archaeology all the way down to wars and women's history and things of that nature. We have sports, we have everything. And as I say, we have the entire wall here. And so we've been doing this, well, basically, um, the files, because one of our, our first director was Florence Hardy, and she was a uh, city clerk for many years. She worked for the city, and she had always kept her own clipping files. And when she came to the Historical Society, she brought them along with her, and they became sort of the basis of our clipping files. And since she had worked for the city to oh, back into the 1920s, we have some very early clippings in there that go all the way back. You'll sometimes find this little yellow clipping that's in one of those files, and you're reading the 1916 story. That's just as people did back in those days. So it's kind of fun. The Hoke Heritage Center is home of the Fort Lauderdale Historical Society and one of a group of buildings that makes up the Fort Lauderdale History Center complex. Over here on this side, we have all of our maps over here. And basically, these we do a lot of property research. And we have Sanborn maps. Uh, we have uh, Hopkins Platt maps. We have various other kinds of like ready maps and things like that, real estate. A lot of people come in here to, uh, they just are interested. They've bought an old house. They want to see what the history is. So they come in here, and of course, on a Sanborn map, the way the maps are laid out, you know, you they, they put the footprint of the house just as it was in the year when they came around and surveyed the area. And so you can go back into some of our earlier maps and go back to like 19... 24, and you can see what was at that property and just exactly what the house shape or the footprint of the house looked like. So that's very interesting. So we have that. Uh, behind you are shelves uh, where we have city directories. Uh, we have city directories from Fort Lauderdale. We also have some from uh, Dania and from Pompano and from Hollywood. 
but uh, our Fort Lauderdale directories go back to 1918, which was where the first one was done. Uh, over on the just behind those uh, directories, we have uh, phone books. We try to keep the phone books, and our first phone books go back to the 1920s. And actually, we were part of the Miami phone book. We weren't really our own separate phone book. There just weren't that many phones in town. Marilyn Rathbun describes the Hoke Heritage Center collection of three-dimensional objects, such as farm implements and household items, and shows us architectural drawings, manuscript collections, and periodicals, including the Florida Historical Quarterly. We're trying to digitize everything, you know, which, of course, is going to be a long, slow process. For instance, one of the things I haven't told you about up here in this corner, you see that green door over there. That's our negative room. Uh, we have approximately 250,000 uh, historic negatives. And we're in the process of trying to scan those negatives and digitize them and get them in order. And that's going to be a very long, slow process. I think right at the moment we have maybe five or 6,000 negatives scanned in. <laughs> so it's going to take a long time to get that organized. And then, of course, all of our, uh, I mean, like this is the maps that we have out here is just sort of the tip of the iceberg. We have plenty of maps in the uh, you know, uh, remote archive, all of which has to be, uh, uh, well, they're not going to be themselves be digitized, but they will, we have to have the uh, the finding aids. We'll be able to find them and go to the computer and be able to look them up and find out, well, this is in this exact, exactly in this case or it's in this room, whatever. Uh, we also have a large manuscript collection. Our biggest manuscript collection are the Stranahan papers. And, of course, the Stranahans were uh, the early settlers of uh, Fort Lauderdale as the city. You know, Frank Stranahan came down here to uh, basically run the ferry uh, across. In the, He was set up the trading post and a camp for overnight visitors because people would come down from Palm Beach by stage. Uh, it was a two-day trip, so they'd stay overnight at his camp, and then they'd go across in the ferry and continue on down to Miami, and that was before the train came through. But then they became he became essentially was considered the first uh, permanent settler of the town. When Henry Flagler's East Coast Railway did come to Fort Lauderdale, the New River Inn was built in 1905. The former hotel is now a history museum and part of the Fort Lauderdale History Center. Originally, uh, it was built by uh, Philemon Bryan, who was the man who was the contractor to build the uh, railroad uh, line between uh, the New River and Pompano Beach. He was building that part of the, of the uh, thing, and he acquired a bit of land down here uh, along the railroad tracks as part of his pay, I'm sure. And he built the hotel, and originally he built a wood frame building on the, the property where the inn is now, or just slightly behind where the inn is now. And for many years, he ran that as kind of a, a boarding house railroad hotel, serving uh, the uh, people who came in on the railroad. We had a lot of, this was a shipping point for winter vegetables, uh, big uh, docks where they brought it in by river, and then they would ship it north. So we had all these brokers coming into town all the time, and they needed a place to stay, so they were staying at the inn. But then about... Uh, about 1905, uh, both they decided that they needed to build a more substantial hotel, maybe something that would be a little bit fancier, could attract a little winter visitor. And, and uh, so uh, Ed King, who was the first contractor in uh, Fort Lauderdale, uh, he was a pioneer, he was a farmer, he was one of these people who could do just about anything, but he did a lot of the building down here. So he was very uh, interested in experimenting uh, with uh, concrete block and concrete construction, you know, it's kind of a safety construction, it was fireproof, 
possibly hurricane-proof, maybe. <laughs> and uh, so they built it out of these uh, concrete blocks that they were made on uh, uh, right here on the site, you know, with using the, the na uh, natural sandy uh, stuff and the, the, the uh, brackish water from the river. And uh, they are what they call rusticated concrete blocks. It's supposed to look like stone, like artificial stone, but that's uh, what it was built out of. And as I say, it's a big two-story building, hip roof. It's got nice big uh, gallery porches that uh, go along the uh, east side of the building, which is the main facade, and then the uh, south facade, which faces the river. And, of course, they all had uh, nice big rocking chairs out there. People could go out there and sit and watch the action on the river and everything like that. So it became sort of... Uh, the first little sort of upscale hotel in Fort Lauderdale. People traveling on Flagler's Railway could get off at the train station and walk across the tracks to the New River Inn. Now a museum, the inn features exhibits on the Tequesta and Seminole Indians. Displays also cover the period of the 1830s when William Lauderdale came to the New River Settlement and built a fort during the Second Seminole Indian War. The timeline of exhibits continues through the mid-20th century when the New River Inn ceased operation as a hotel. One room is furnished as it might have been in the hotel's heyday. Museum attendant Nina Brokus. Well, it's uh, furniture of the period, not necessarily original to the hotel, but definitely of the period. Um, the rooms are quite uh, large, or they were quite large, about 15 feet square, but there was no closet to speak of. You just hung your hat on a hook or your, your coat. Or, of course, people didn't have didn't travel with a lot of clothing in those days, particularly men who were our earliest visitors, uh, real estate promoters, hunters, fishermen. Uh, they probably only had a, a, a change of a clean shirt and maybe an extra pair of socks, and that was probably it. So your clothes were hung on a hook. Uh, there was no closet taking up space, and the bathroom was down the hall. Uh, there's a, a dresser and a desk and uh, and a uh, a bed. Uh, school children were through here uh, last week on a special do, uh, tour that we do for uh, the schools, and they were puzzled at the smallness of the bed. <laughs> and I said, "Well, there weren't any king size beds in the early days, and this was your your standard double bed. Two people would sleep in this bed." The 1905 Bryan House belonged to Philemon Bryan, owner of the New River Inn. The classical revival house is now home of the Fort Lauderdale Historical Society Administrative Offices. The 1907 King Cromarty House is also part of the Fort Lauderdale History Center complex, but was not always located here. Marilyn Rathbun. No, it was not. That is actually Ed King's second home, and that was actually on the south side of the river. We, of course, are located on the north side of the uh, New River, and that was actually down by Federal Highway. We're, that's, what, about a mile, a little over a mile, I think, away from us, and it was on the south side of the river in, a, in an area that's called, now called Smoker Park, uh, but at one time, it was going to be uh, developed, you know, had been purchased, and uh, the Junior League uh, basically, the developer told uh, the Junior League that if you can move the house out of there, you can have it. So what they did is they made the arrangements. They had the help of a local architect, uh, Robert Hansen, who was very interested in historic things. And what they did is they put it on a barge, and they basically towed the barge upriver. The house originally was built in 1907 by Ed King. Steve Paley is docent at the King Cromarty House. 
just four rooms. So this room, two bedrooms, and the living room. Okay, in 1911, he added a second floor, which is basically two dormers, so he put two bedrooms up there. But he also put an indoor kitchen in, which was the first indoor kitchen in Fort Lauderdale. And uh, for this first time, luxury. He also added a porch in the back, and then finally screened it in so they could eat outdoors. Of course, before that, you couldn't eat outdoors. All right. And the reason it was a big deal to have an indoor kitchen is it was usually very, very hot. You couldn't cook indoors, and there was always a chance of fire because there was an open fireplace. So as you can see, a stove. Also got a stove in the living room, which I've never figured out, but what the heck. <laughs> so uh, if upstairs, as I said, two bedrooms, and he also put a bathroom in upstairs, which is the first indoor bathroom in town here. Okay. Uh, the house itself is furnished with period-sensitive pieces. Very few native to the house. That piece over there, it's a, a washstand, but everything else is just local, uh, given to the uh, museum by uh, nice, generous donors. The Junior League operated the King Cromarty home as a house museum until the Fort Lauderdale Historical Society took it over in 1994. A replica of the 1899 schoolhouse was constructed behind the home to host Pioneer Days for local students. Back at the Hoke Heritage Center, Marilyn Rathbun explains that the building was originally a post office annex built in 1949. This building actually was where you came to pay your traffic tickets, if you were so unlucky as to get a traffic ticket. Uh, in the 19, late 1970s, originally the uh, Historical Society started in a little building over in Holiday Park. And at one time, it was just a small building, and the Parks Department needed to get rid of it for various reasons. So at that time, our director, who was Marjorie Patterson, she was able to make a talk to the city and said, well, what can we do? So the city, because this building was surplus at that, this point, they were moving into new offices, and they didn't need it. Uh, they agreed to fix up this building uh, for the Historical Society. The Fort Lauderdale History Center includes the Hoke Heritage Center, the New River Inn, the Bryan House, the King Cromarty House, and the 1899 Schoolhouse. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. The Rabin and Holtzberg families were among the first Jewish families on the Treasure Coast. Janie Gould speaks with them about their memories of when the first Jewish temple was built. When the first Jewish temple was built in the region nearly 60 years ago, there were so few Jewish families in Indian River and Martin counties that Harold Holtzberg can still recite them by name. In Stewart it was the Arabacs, the Canaracs, and Cantor. And of course in Vero, I think there was only one family, and that was the Blocks, Arthur and Marion Block. And 17 families here. So what did you do for worship services? Years and years and years ago, we would go down to uh, services in West Palm Beach, Arthur's mother and father, my mother and father, and Arthur and myself. Arthur Rubin's family was the second Jewish family to settle in Fort Pierce. His parents, Ralph and Ida, moved down in 1926. Holtzberg's family had been in Fort Pierce for years by that time. Harold's grandfather, Isidore, came in 1912 to operate grocery and dry goods stores. In 1938, the Rubens bought the dry goods store, and for decades they were among the best-known retailers on the Treasure Coast. In the early years, Jewish families held worship services in the local Methodist and Presbyterian churches and at the Women's Club. In 1948, a retired rabbi named Menachem Friedman moved to Fort Pierce. He urged the Jewish community to build its own house of worship. Arthur Rubin remembers. They decided to have a fun drive, uh, which not only the uh, Jewish community had supported, but also a lot of the uh, Christian uh, people in town. 
there was no problem raising enough money. Do you remember how much money was raised and how long it took? If I remember right, I think the contract was probably around 40 thousand dollars. Do you remember, either one of you remember the opening ceremony? The uh, local masons came out in bunches and laid the cornerstone of the temple. We probably had a lot more Christians there than we had <laughs> Jewish people. That was all right. As Arthur said, the community contributed quite a bit of money. What was amazing, I think they went to the bank and borrowed the money, and I believe it was like on a shake of hand. They probably had some contracts they had to sign. That's how well the Jewish community was respected. Go to the bank, shake your hand, borrow the money, and away you went. Temple Bethel on 23rd Street in Fort Pierce was so small at first that Protestants were recruited to sing in the choir. The main choir consisted of only about two Jewish people, and the balance of them were volunteers from the Christian community. For many years, as Fort Pierce grew, so did Temple Bethel. I think at one time on High Holy Day services, Rosa Shelton and Young Kipper, we probably had 100, 125 people at the temple. It was going quite nicely. Then, in the 1970s, the county's demographics started to change. In the south end of St. Lucie County, developers were turning ranch land and palmetto scrub into subdivisions. The members of Temple Bethel decided to move south, too. They acquired a building on Oleander Avenue, about halfway between Fort Pierce and Port St. Lucie. Unfortunately, the Bureau Group didn't like that too well, <laughs> which I can understand. So that's the time that they decided that they were going to have to have a temple in Vero, which they did. Eventually, Port St. Lucie became bigger than Fort Pierce. Temple Bethel merged with a newer temple in Port St. Lucie and is now known as Temple Bethel Israel. Fort Pierce was sort of standing still as far as population goes. How do you feel about that, going to Port St. Lucie for services? We didn't quite like it because, oh, it, for us it was five, ten minutes to go to the temple out on uh, 23rd and B and even going down to Oleander. You know, it was 10, 15 minutes. Well, now you have to go down to uh, Port St. Lucie, uh, it's another 25, 30 minutes, and at that time it seemed like it was a long, long, long ways to have to go to services. How do you feel about that, just well, as a Fort uh, Pierce? I can accept it now because the, uh, <laughs> we're sort of outnumbered, and uh, you got to be where the people are. Arthur Rubin and Harold Holtzberg have known each other since boyhood. Janie Gould prepared that report. We've all seen movies or read books depicting the rough-and-tumble life on the 19th century American frontier. Still, it might surprise you to learn that, of all the southern states and territories, Florida was the most violent and dangerous. Bill Dudley listens as two scholars reveal new findings about a dark period in our state's past. Today, with a murder rate of over 6 per 100,000 persons per year, the United States is the most violent democratic nation on Earth. Ohio State University sociologist and historian Randolph Roth studied patterns of murder in the U.S. from colonial times to the present. His 2009 book, American Homicide, is the culmination of these years of research involving tens of thousands of cases. What we've begun to understand is what drives homicide rates in the most powerful way. It's politics. Most of us look at violence through a liberal or conservative lens in our society. My friends who are conservatives will say it's, de- it's a lack of deterrence, breakdown in family values. My friends who are liberals will argue it's unemployment, it's poverty, it's things like that. Both of those political philosophies have great strengths and great merits, but they don't help us much understand why people kill. Roth's surprising conclusion 
Homicide rates vary according to people's feelings about their government. The reasons why homicide rates go up and down have to do with politics. The worst thing for homicide rates is a breakdown of political stability. When you have revolutions, civil wars, hostile military occupations, and we can see this around the world today. In the United States, economic crises, scandals in government, and unpopular wars have served to undermine people's faith in those at the top. All have been linked to an upswing in homicide. If I don't trust my government, I feel powerless. I feel alone. And so I'm more likely to react quickly and angrily if somebody sues me in a lawsuit. I'll kill them before we even have a chance for the court to decide it. I will be preemptive when I feel I'm protected, that there is law and order. I don't have to go out and protect myself or my property. If I feel that I matter to my fellow Americans, I feel a part of things and included and empowered, I'm more willing to let the little insults and slights that I face in daily life just roll off my back. A few years ago, Roth encountered the work of Florida Southern College historian Mike Denham. Denham's 1997 book, Rogue's Paradise, Crime and Punishment in Antebellum, Florida, looked at the surprising amount of violence on the Florida frontier in the years between the American Revolution and the beginning of the Civil War. What I discovered was most of the killings were crime of passion, that kind of thing. Insults, slights, and also if it was uh, premeditated, it was, it was a long-simmering animosity towards someone that kind of reached the, the boiling point. And people at the time were always commenting on it, particularly Northerners who always were talking about how in the South there was this hair-trigger temper. And even at the time, people were very cognizant of the fact that the South was far more violent. Mike had argued that Floridians, particularly white Floridians, were killing each other at an enormous rate. And he had that sense, and he was absolutely right. And we thought, well... Let's try to put a number on it. Building on Denham's research, Roth was able to apply statistical analysis to reveal a grim picture of life in 19th century Florida. If you were to live an entire adult life in Florida, say your life expectancy once you reach age 16 was about 43 years, I mean, you had a tremendous chance of being killed over the course of your lifetime, you know, one in 60 probably, something like that. This was very, very deadly. It's probably about five to ten times more violent than homicidal than Virginia, three or four times more than the Carolinas and Georgia. So the puzzle is, what went wrong in Florida? Shortly after the century began, the War of 1812, what historians call the Patriot War in Spanish Florida, ushered in turbulent times on the peninsula. What you had in Florida was tremendous political instability and upheaval because of the Patriot War of 1812-14. And you see government break down. You see vicious violence and fighting among the European Americans, Native Americans, African Americans, struggling for supremacy, struggling for some kind of political voice. And you'll see the people who were defeated in the Patriot War, the, the Americans who wanted to annex it, became very violent. A lot of them became predatory robbers. After Florida became an American territory in 1821, an absentee government inspired deep distrust among its citizens. Territorial Florida was a colony, a, a colony of the federal government. And the administration at the time would appoint the governor, they appointed the judges, and they appointed many, most of the most important federal officials. And Floridians felt as though they were, in a sense, disfranchised. In addition, the new government was riddled with corruption. They stole from the people. They rigged the bidding process on land so that poor people couldn't buy land. And so you create a very divided society economically. They created the Union Bank. 
uh, which they chartered, and they loaned out all the money to themselves, and they said if the bank goes bankrupt, who is liable to pay off all of the debts? The taxpayers of Florida. So, And, of course, they did go bankrupt during the economic crisis of 1837-42. And if that weren't enough, the Second Seminole Indian War began in 1835, bringing even more discord to the lives of Floridians. And so here you have a government that's incapable of winning the Seminole War, that has gone bankrupt, that has put the burden of its own economic failure on the citizens. And you'll see in that period, 1835-42, to 42, the homicide rate in the state of Florida spikes to something like 10 times what our homicide rate is today. And it's that accumulated anger and frustration. And people aren't aware that their anger and frustration feeds over into their daily lives, that they're more likely to kill their friends and neighbors. Familial disputes, political disputes, quarrels over the behavior of a slave, just random encounters of people in their daily lives. You go to a store, they don't take your, the kind of bank note that you have because they think it's discounted. You get angry, and of course you react in a violent way. They kill each other over crop damage from somebody else's stray cattle. Disputes over small debts. Disputes over whether I paid you properly, whether this horse swap was on it. I think you sold me a bad horse. I'll shoot you. These kinds of things that should be decided by courts of law. And in fact, often they shoot each other even though they're at that very time suing each other in court. But they don't want to wait for the government to decide it. They won't abide by court decisions. Sometimes if the court decision goes against them, they'll go out and they'll shoot the person. Less than a decade after Florida entered statehood in 1845, its citizens were becoming deeply divided over the question of secession. The radical secessionists really engaged in a campaign that was, to some extent, a campaign to tear against people who disagreed with them. The rate at which blacks were murdered for being a threat or for being uppity or for challenging whites doubles during the secession crisis, up to 20 per 100,000 per year. And the rate at which whites are killing each other skyrockets during that secession crisis. And a lot of that murders is vigilantism. People are suspected of being loyal to the North or abolitionists or people who aren't supporting the pro-slavery wing of the Democratic Party. They just go out and kill these people. Both historians believe this legacy of violence has had a lasting effect on our state and its people. And it plays out to the extent that if you look at southern states into the early 20th century, Florida still stands out. In the 1920s, the most homicidal southern state was Florida. And so once you have this legacy of distrust and political disruption and a lack of faith in institutions and a lack of trust in your fellow citizens, it can lead to violence for generations. But what lessons can we learn from this particular view of history? Can you build strong institutions where people feel protected? Can you build a government that people trust? Can you build a sense of commonality and purpose that transcends you know, class, race, or neighborhood, that you feel a connection with people you don't know, but say, you know, these are my fellow Americans, my fellow Floridians, we're one people. We know, for instance, in Iraq now and Afghanistan, it's so hard to create that where it's broken down, where it doesn't exist. And I think we need to understand as Americans, there's one lesson we need to take away from the history of Florida, the history of our country in the 19th century, is how badly nation-building failed in the early years, and how We still, although we are a great nation, in those kinds of fundamental ways, we're still a divided people. 
we still have a great deal of distrust of government that comes from our historic experiences. And we don't often trust the government to really back us up when we've lost property, when, we're at, when we feel threatened by our neighbors. So we will act preemptively in a way that people who have more confidence in their institutions and other advanced industrial nations don't. So I guess that's the kind of story that we have to tell. Randolph Roth is the author of American Homicide, published by Harvard University Press. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Bill Dudley. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us again next week, and until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org, join us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society, and follow us on Twitter at MyFLHistory. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.